this is Jeannie Poole, Editor-in-Chief of the Heart Rhythm Open Access and Online Journal. This podcast summarizes the June 2020 issue. The first paper is entitled, Implantable Cardioverter Defibrillator Programming After First Occurrence of Ventricular Tachycardia in the Multicenter Automatic Defibrillation Implantation Trial Reduce Inappropriate Therapy, or made it RIT. The authors are Mehmet Kamal Akhtas and colleagues, analysis of the made at RIT study, and asks the question, what ICD program changes were made following the first episode of ET, and what were the outcomes of these patients? As a reminder, the made at RIT study was a programming strategy trial randomizing 1,500 primary prevention indicated patients to a conventional two-zone programming with lowest therapy treatment zone of 170 beats per minute, a high-rate only treatment arm with lowest therapy zone programmed at 200 beats per minute, and the third arm of the trial was three therapy zones with prolonged detection duration, with the lowest therapy zone programmed at 170 beats per minute. The authors identified 205 patients who experienced VT at a rate of 170 beats per minute or greater. Only 30 patients had their programming changed by the investigator. Changes were most often made when the patient had been programmed to the high-rate zone-only arm of the trial, whereas if changes were made for patients in the other randomized arms, they were more likely to be minor, which overall preserved the intent of randomization. The primary finding of this analysis is that in the 205 patients who had VT, inappropriate shocks remained lower with the two intervention arms compared to the conventional programming arm. Appropriate ICD therapy was more common in the conventional arm, and syncope or heart failure hospitalization was not different by programming group. These findings are consistent with the original findings of the made at RIT trial, which is not surprising given that few patients, even after the occurrence of first VT, had their programming changed. In summary, this trial demonstrated that in patients who undergo implant of a primary prevention ICD or CRTD, the benefit of high rate cutoff or duration delay ICD programming settings was maintained after the first occurrence of VT. Dr. Judith Mackle from Case Western University in Cleveland, Ohio provides an editorial for this article. I would like to highlight one important point that is made, that while prescriptive and consensus documents supported programming, with high rate zones and longer detection times are supported by several randomized clinical trials. Nevertheless, each patient is unique, and some patients will not be appropriate for prescriptive programming, such as might be the case in some advanced heart failure patients. Such patients can be syncopal with slower rate sustained VTs. Patients should all be on remote monitoring such that VT in the monitor zone, should it occur, can be brought to the attention of the managing physician and appropriate programming changes made if indicated. The next paper is by Brian Wisnowski and Niraj Varma. The title of the paper is Left Ventricular Paste Activation in CRT Patients with Left Bundle Branch Block and Relationship to Its Electrical Substrate. In 120 heart failure patients with left bundle branch block undergoing CRT with a quadrupolar LV lead, the authors explore intrinsic conduction as well as interventricular and intraventricular conduction via a series of measurements, both sensed and paced. To measure intrinsic conduction, a determination of the QLV was measured at both the proximal and distal electoral pairs on the LV lead. 
A second measurement was made from the RV intracardiac sense signal to the LV intracardiac sense signal at both the proximal and the distal LV pairs. Next, a measurement of interventricular and intraventricular conduction was performed and included a measurement of the RV paced intracardiac electrogram to the LV sensed electrogram at both the LV lead proximal and distal pairs. Next, the paced vector was reversed and measurements were obtained from the LV paced electrogram and again from both the proximal and then the distal LV pair to the RV lead intracardiac electrogram. Following this, the onset of pacing to the sense signal between the LV bipoles was measured, and finally the difference in QLV between proximal and distal LV pairs was measured. The authors found that the area of latest LV activation spanned by a multipolar lead is large, as determined by measuring the QLV. It was also found that the QLV did not differ much when measured from the proximal and distal electoral pairs for the overall group. In the minority, or 30% of patients who did have a small gradient present, no difference was observed between ischemic or non-ischemic patients. Also of interest is that the gradient was overcome when the measurements were made during pacing, RV to LV, or vice versa. Second, the authors found that unlike QLV, interventricular pacing effects are much more variable. Overall, the measurements during pacing of the RV to either LV bipole and from either LV bipole to the RV are significantly longer than the QLV. Finally, LV pacing exerted a range of effects that were unrelated to baseline QRS morphology, or QLV, and were not necessarily predictable from the LV stimulation site. These data provide further insights into the complexity of CRT. In individual patients, there may be differences in interventricular conduction related to pacing from the RV first or the LV first, and in some patients where the specific bipole pair may provide differential benefit. The next paper is one of the articles in our basic research category and it continues the theme of cardiac resynchronization therapy. The title of this paper is Evaluating Multi-Site Pacing Strategies in Cardiac Resynchronization Therapy in the Preclinical Setting. The authors are Luke Heckman and colleagues. This study is conducted using a porcine animal model of left bundle branch block and explores the concepts of multi-point and multi-zone pacing. A detailed investigation is conducted to evaluate the benefit of either of these two approaches for improved cardiac synchronization and acute hemodynamics compared to standard BIV pacing. BIV, multipoint, and multi-zone pacing configurations were created by pacing the RV apex simultaneously with one or more band electrodes on the left ventricle. Dual LV pacing combinations were classified as multipoint if the paced electrodes were apical basally aligned, or as multi-zone if the electrodes were circumferentially aligned. Electrode combinations were chosen with varying interelectrode distances at different LV levels, basal and mid, and different LV segments, anterior, lateral, or posterior. The authors found that, as expected, pacing the lateral wall provided the best decrease in total activation time. They also found that the acute hemodynamic response was highly variable amongst the animals with only a moderate correlation between the reduction in total activation time and the increase in LVDP over DT max which is not inconsistent with many studies showing that acute hemodynamic changes correlate poorly with longer-term measures of LV remodeling. Both multipoint and multi-zone pacing provided similar benefits as assessed by total activation time and acute hemodynamic response. The distance between the electrodes mattered for multipoint pacing where activation time was shorter with the smaller inter-electrode distance, whereas the inter-electrode distance did not seem to affect the multi-zone pacing. Compared with the BIV pacing, overall the reduction in activation time was not different between the three modalities. 
The only situation in which multi-point pacing or multi-zone pacing improved the acute hemodynamic response was only when bivy pacing resulted in a minimal decrease in activation or acute hemodynamic response. The authors conclude that both multi-point and multi-zone pacing create a similar degree of electrical resynchronization and hemodynamic effect and can provide an advantage to standard bivy pacing when the bivy pacing site provides poor response. The next article is by Uma Srivatsa and colleagues. The title of the paper is Bariatric Surgery to Alleviate Occurrence of Atrial Fibrillation Hospitalization, or Block AF. This is a retrospective double cohort study that evaluates the incidence of new AF or heart failure in obese patients following bariatric surgery compared to other gastrointestinal but not bariatric surgical procedures. The patients were identified using hospital discharge records between 1994 and 2014. All patients with prior atrial fibrillation or atrial flutter were excluded. All patients enrolled met definitions of obesity. The clinical outcomes were heart failure, a first-time hospitalization for AFib or A-flutter, gastrointestinal bleeding, and ischemic or hemorrhagic stroke. Outcomes were analyzed using conditional proportional hazard modeling, accounting for the competing risk of death and adjusting for demographics and comorbidities. The patient population included 1,581 cases and 3,162 controls. 48% of the total population were under the age of 50 years, 60% were white, 79% female, and the mean CHADS-VAS score was 1.6, with a follow-up time of 66 months. Compared to the controls, the patients who had bariatric surgery had a significantly lower risk of new-onset AF with a hazard ratio of 0.71 or heart failure with a hazard ratio of 0.74, but had a higher risk of GI bleeding with a hazard ratio of 2.1, without differences in first hospitalization for atrial flutter or in the outcome measures of ischemic or hemorrhagic stroke. Reduction in AF was observed to improve as follow-up increased beyond 60 months. The authors conclude that in patients undergoing bariatric surgery, the risk of either heart failure or AF was reduced by 29% and support the hypothesis that weight reduction is beneficial to reduce the long-term risk of developing atrial fibrillation and heart failure. The next study by Anna Naughton and colleagues is titled Introducing a Novel Catheter Tissue Contact Feedback Feature in Robotic Navigated Catheter Ablation, Utility, Feasibility, and Safety. This study evaluates a novel e-contact module designed for use with remote magnetic navigation to improve tissue contact for ablation. The model collects information on electrical impedance measurements, both unipolar and bipolar, cardiac-induced motion of the catheter tip, and the torque being applied by the magnetic field. Preclinical studies have demonstrated that stable and optimal contact was associated with a delta bipolar impedance change of more than 5 ohms above the impedance of the blood pool. The outcomes measured in this study include analysis of procedure parameters and evaluation of whether or not interference with other equipment used routinely in catheter ablation procedures could be observed. This study does not report on specific lesion characteristics or clinical outcome measures. The study was conducted at a single center, was prospective, and included two phases of testing. The first phase was the feasibility phase. 
and looked at the impact of the e-contact module on procedural parameters. During the interference phase, other equipment was tested for the possibility of interference using pacing maneuvers at three randomly selected right atrial sites. Intracardiac electrograms were evaluated for possible disturbances by two independent electrophysiologists. The study included a total of 30 procedures, 70% were pulmonary vein isolation and the remainder were CTI A-flutter ablation, left atrial ablation of atrial flutter or atrial tachycardia and PVC ablation. The feasibility phase results showed that the mean procedure time was 162 plus or minus 66 minutes, fluoroscopy time 21 plus or minus 9 minutes, and ablation time 34 plus or minus 21 minutes. The second interference phase results showed that no significant differences in pacing capture or thresholds were found between when the e-contact module was or was not being utilized. Furthermore, electrogram disturbances did not significantly differ between using or not using the e-contact module. Finally, no adverse events were reported. To summarize, this study evaluated a novel catheter tissue contact technology designed for remote magnetic navigation guided catheter ablation. The findings of this study suggest that this feature is feasible while maintaining an excellent intraprocedural safety profile as demonstrated by the interference phase results. In this next brief report, Haba Hassan and colleagues authored the paper titled Novel Beta Blocker Pretreatment Prevents Alcohol-Induced Atrial Fibrillation in a Rat Model. The background for the study was based upon a case report of a patient who effectively used pretreatment with beta blockers prior to alcohol consumption to reduce the risk of atrial fibrillation. A rat animal model was developed to test the ability of beta blockers to reduce inducibility of atrial fibrillation in three test groups. The test groups in total included 29 rats and were in three groups. The first was an alcohol-injected group, injected intraperitoneal, two grams per kilogram, a total four times every other day. A control group was injected with saline, a total of four times every other day. And a third group was given both the alcohol injections as well as metoprolol, 50 milligrams per kilogram, given prior to each alcohol injection. One day after the final injections, echocardiography and AF inducibility was performed with measurement of the atrial effective refractory periods. All but one rat completed the study. The results of this study showed no statistically significant difference in echo-determined cardiac function or left ventricular hemodynamic studies amongst the groups. Also, measurement of the atrial refractory period did not differ. However, a significant difference in atrial fibrillation inducibility and duration of AF between the groups was observed with higher inducibility and longer ERPs in the alcohol-exposed groups compared to the control group. When the beta blocker pretreated group was compared to the alcohol group without pretreatment with beta blockers, the frequency of AF inducibility and AF duration was significantly reduced. The author summarized that this animal study may support further clinical studies exploring the use of beta blocker pretreatment prior to alcohol consumption. Of course, patients with atrial fibrillation ought to minimize or avoid altogether consuming alcohol given its known association with atrial fibrillation. The next study comes from the same institution and explores in a rat heart failure model the potential benefit of dantrolene to reduce AF inducibility and improve heart failure as measured by echo parameters of LV size and function. This paper is titled Chronic Dantrolene Treatment Attenuates Cardiac Dysfunction 
and reduces atrial fibrillation inducibility in a rat myocardial infarction heart failure model. The authors are Yuhua Zhang and colleagues. Prior studies have suggested that dantrolene has a potential stabilizing effect on the cardiac ryanidine receptor and can reduce diastolic calcium leak. This study was performed in 34 rats with 13 randomly assigned to the dantrolene group, 14 to the drug vehicle group, and seven who had a sham procedure with thoracotomy but without the LED occlusion performed as in the other two groups to create a heart failure model. Four weeks after therapy was initiated, the rats underwent echocardiography, hemodynamic monitoring to measure LV pressures, and rapid pacing for AF inducibility. After sacrifice, histologic studies were performed to assess phosphorylated ryanidine receptor levels and the gene expression of a number of ion channels, sympathetic signaling, oxidative stress, and inflammatory markers. The major finding from this study is that chronic Dantrolene treatment attenuated heart failure development as measured by echocardiographic parameters and significantly reduced AF inducibility. Dantrolene treated rats had reduced RYR2 phosphorylation and attenuation or prevention of many changes induced by the MI heart failure model, including mRNA levels for ion channels, adrenergic receptors, antioxidative enzymes, and inflammatory markers. This animal study suggests that dantrolene may stabilize RYR2 and may be a promising novel therapeutic strategy in reducing atrial fibrillation in heart failure. The next study is a patient-centered design study that explores a method to test patient preferences for remote monitoring data that could be accessed by patients and potentially promote engaging patients in their health. The paper is by Carly Daly and colleagues, and the title is Involving Patients as Key Stakeholders in the Design of Cardiovascular Implantable Electronic Device Data Dashboards Implications for Patient Care. The study was conducted with 29 adults, all of whom had either an ICD or pacemaker. All devices were Medtronic devices. The first phase of the study provided the patient with cards displaying 40 remote monitoring data elements. The subjects were then asked to prioritize them according to personal preference of importance. Phase two included one-on-one -on -one design sessions to gather insights and feedback about the visual display of data elements. The mean age of the 29 participants was approximately 72 years, 52% approximately were female, and 90% were white. In phase one, the subjects chose their highest priority data elements. Participants with pacemakers prioritized battery longevity, cardiac event observations, atrial pacing and sensing parameters, and what the average ventricular rate during AT or AF was, if present. Participants with ICDs prioritized information regarding pacing and aborted shocks, although battery longevity was not prioritized. Common to all 29 participants, monitored, pace terminated, and treated cardiac episodes were prioritized, and also lead impedance, both pacing as well as high voltage in the ICD group. Overall, the participants rejected data that was difficult to interpret or that the participants thought was irrelevant. Additional data was obtained that would indicate that a certain parameter was in the normal and safe range, and some indication that the physician had reviewed the information. 
The patients also preferred information that tells them what actions they can take if the value is outside of the normal range. The subjects noted that they would prefer more frequent access to the data, monthly or every three months, versus less data. The phase two portion of the study showed that subjects preferred descriptive and non-technical terms to describe the dashboard data elements and that icons should be both intuitive and informative. This study provides helpful information that can lead to larger studies, which may provide further insight into what a patient accessible information dashboard for remote monitoring might look like. The authors note that involving patients in the design work provides insights for tailoring information to individual needs. The next paper by Robert Rose and colleagues is titled Atrial Remodeling and Atrial Fibrillation in Acquired Forms of Cardiovascular Disease. This is an excellent and comprehensive review article covering electrical and structural remodeling in atrial fibrillation. The authors describe the determinants of atrial remodeling in common diseases such as hypertension, hypertrophy, heart failure, and diabetes, as well as considering age. Data from both human and animal studies are reviewed. The final paper is a case report. The authors are Felix Krasinski and colleagues, and the title of the paper is What Goes In May Need to Come Out, Considerations in the Extraction of the Medtronic 3830 Select Secure Lead. Here the authors describe a 14-year-old male with congenital heart disease who received a pacemaker for complete heart block with two Medtronic 3830 leads. Five years later, the leads showed evidence of lead failure and a decision was made to extract the leads and implant a new set. The authors go on to describe the challenges with extraction of this luminless lead design with a fixed and exposed helix. As a locking stylette cannot be used with this lead design, the authors describe the use of compression ties and a lead extender and the specific approach that they utilize, which resulted in successful extraction of both leads without complication. This case illustrates that extraction of the Medtronic 3830 lead appears feasible and safe and has implications for the use of this lead for his bundle pacing. This concludes my summary of the articles found in the June issue of Heart Rhythm 02. Thank you for listening to this podcast.